This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Barry Kreisworth about TB and captive elephants. Dr. Kreisworth is the founding director of the Public Health Research Institute, Tuberculosis Center at Rutgers University. Welcome, Dr. Kreisworth. Thank you. Dr. Kreisworth, as the founder of the TB Center at the Public Health Research Center, how did TB and elephants become of interest to you? Well, it sort of found me. So just to, as background, the TB Center, which I set up uh, in January of 1992, it's actually 25 years, uh, we just had our, our anniversary, um, was really in response to an emerging epidemic in New York City, which started around 1991, which was due to the co-infection of tuberculosis among AIDS patients. And that was my introduction to tuberculosis. And as a public health laboratory that does research, um, we decided to see if we could provide some help to this tuberculosis epidemic because many, many years had passed since we had tuberculosis as a major problem in New York City, and it was really uh, fueled by the AIDS epidemic because we now understand that the co-infection of HIV and TB um, is called a deadly duet. So having said that, we set up a tuberculosis center, and the real goal was to, for lack of a better term, to fingerprint the M. tuberculosis bacteria from infected and diseased patients so we could provide help to the Department of Health um, to track and identify patients with tuberculosis um, in order they can perform better TB control. So that's the history of the center. So any study that has to do with tuberculosis and someone can provide us with the actual bacteria um, we can characterize them, and we've been doing this for 25 years, have over 35,000 bacteria in our collection, and the audience should remember when you're dealing with tuberculosis, you need a very, very special facility um, to both uh, house and study tuberculosis because the bacteria spreads via the air. So you need biosafety level 3 facilities, which we had to establish in 1991-2 for to respond to the epidemic. So, long way to say that we've been doing this a long time, and any infection caused by M. tuberculosis, um, be it in humans or in animals, elephants, lions, um, elk, um, and also in cows, which is caused by a related bacteria, M. bovis, uh, we can fingerprint. So, we have a huge collection, and I was basically contacted by a colleague of mine from Arkansas who's also a DNA fingerprinter named Don Cave who asked me if I would do him a favor and speak with Dr. Gary Simpson who is an infectious disease physician who also consults for the Albuquerque Zoo um, because he had an elephant that had tuberculosis and he asked me if we could at least uh, fingerprint the bacteria and Gary contacted me and it's been a very, very uh, pleasant relationship with Gary over the last now uh, close to 17 years um, studying this very, very interesting story. Okay. Well, your study now involves three elephants, elephants A, B, and C. <laughs> Can you tell us about them? Yes. 
so this story, um, and the audience should understand, we, we actually, uh, when we talk about these elephants, we actually use their names, but believe it or not, for HIPAA regulations, um, we weren't allowed to, to, to name the elephants as they are in the zoo, so we call them no kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, so the story begins in 1997 in July, and the, and it should be known in the fact that I lived in New York City and, and grew up in New Jersey, we didn't have small um, traveling circuses come through town. We had the big Barnum and Bailey ones at Madison Square Garden, but many, many towns have um, circuses that come through, spend a few days, and they're sort of roving caravans. And many of the key attraction is an elephant, um, which everyone loves, but the downside is elephants are expensive, they live a long time, and if the uh, caravan is having uh, financial woes, elephants um, unfortunately can uh, pay the price. In this particular instance, there were three elephants um, who we'll call A, B, and X, who were um, sent to the Albuquerque Zoo because they were being poorly treated um, by basically a caravan that went bankrupt. Um, so one of the elephants, unfortunately, uh, died, um, and the other two elephants, who we'll call A and B, um, were received by the zoo, and as soon as you receive, in this case, um, quite malnourished animals, uh, especially ones that um, could be sick, they put them in quarantine. So elephant A was an elephant, uh, Asian elephant of 31 years old, um, who was also with elephant B, who was an eight-year-old African uh, elephant. So an Asian and an African elephant put in quarantine um, and basically just, uh, you know, brought back to good health, and they spent one year um, in quarantine um, together each uh, quarter, so every three months, they were tested. Now, what happens with elephants, similar to what we do in humans, there are ways to evaluate whether an elephant, um, in this case, has um, presumed disease with tuberculosis. And the way you do that is you do what are called trunk washes. So elephants are very, very um, smart, and their trunks are um, very able to, uh, to take in this case, saline, about a liter of saline. You just put it at uh, the bottom, and they take in the saline, and they basically slosh it around, and they uh, expel it back into the bag. And that's the way you can sample, if you will, um, to see if they're harboring tuberculosis, and that saline is taken to the laboratory and um, tested to see if there's any um, tuberculosis bacteria in that sample. So it's concentrated and tested, and that is done around the U.S. Um, by the USDA to monitor elephant health. And in this case, it was done every three months um, so they could really evaluate, since these were presumed you know, sick elephants, um, to make sure that they didn't have TB. And after one year, um, so basically four samplings every three months, um, they were deemed to be trunk wash negative, which means they didn't have any um, active TB that they could test or they could evaluate. And so in 1998, after a year, they were sent into the general zoo population with the other elephants, and everything was fine. And then in October of 2000, that's when um, one of the elephants, in this case it was elephant A, the 31-year-old Asian elephant, 
um, had a positive trunk flush, which means that the laboratory identified M. tuberculosis um, in her trunk wash. She had sub- subsequent trunk washes um, and was deemed to be uh, with TB. So, so that's the that's the way I got involved. So at that point, there was bacteria isolated from elephant A. And they sent it to Don Cave's lab in Arkansas and subsequently to my lab, and we fingerprinted them. So that's, that's the beginning of the story. Okay. And Elephant B? What happened to Elephant B? Okay. So, good question. So the analogy in this case with humans, if um, mom has TB in the household, the first thing we do is to make sure anyone who's been exposed to mom, which is obviously everyone in the family, everyone she works with, everyone she um, has close contacts with, would be tested to see if they were exposed. In humans, it's called the PPD test, or now we use something called interferon gamma. It's really to see if, if, if you've been in contact and have thereby been infected. Now, it's a very subtle difference when you are P- become PPD positive, it doesn't mean you have disease. It means you have now acquired the infection and potentially could come down with disease in your lifetime. So what we do, if we do find people who have been exposed, we treat them in a prophylactic way, which means we treat them with a drug to try to prevent them from coming down with disease. And that's called isoniazid prophylaxis. So in this case, we had an elephant who had active disease, elephant A, who we treated, which we'll talk about next, and we have elephant B who's been housed with elephant A for a year, so the presumption is, uh uh-oh, if elephant A has TB, we're worried about elephant B, so they gave elephant B isoniazid treatment, um, one drug for six months, um, in a similar manner how we treated elephant A, which we'll talk about um, in terms of the treatment regimen. Okay. So there was antimicrobial resistance in elephant A. Does this resistance herald the same kind of danger that it does in humans? And Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good question about resistance. So what we learn, and this is, this is something that we don't commonly see in humans, but, um, and I knew nothing about this until we started sampling, it turns out, and that's one of the reasons we fingerprinted the TB from elephant A, Um, She actually was infected with three different strains. Um, One of them was rifampin-resistant, and the other two were susceptible to all um, drugs that we use to treat TB. So because one of them was rifampin-resistant and the other two weren't, um, they were cautious about the treatment regimen. The actual way bacteria, in this case TB, becomes resistant to rifampin is um, due to probably just exposure to the drug without a complete um, treatment regimen. And it, it, it actually mutates, um, and the strain from elephant A had the same type of change that you would see in a patient from a human patient who had rifampin resistance as well. So it was a classic uh, strain of rifampin resistance. The other two were susceptible. So it did present a problem, much like in humans, what to treat with, because rifampin is our best TB drug, it's bactericidal, and it's the key to any treatment regimen, which needs to be multiple antibiotics in this case. Um, So it did present a problem. 
Okay, so um, in your study, you talk a little bit about how uh, elephant A's treatment was believed to have probably been inadequate. Uh, what, are, yeah. what would you have done differently? Well, I think we should first talk about um, how we treated him, um, just because it'll explain um, some of the concerns about um, both what we treated with and how we treated with and for how long. So these are, these are the same issues you have treating humans. Um, so in this case, we knew we had a rifampin-resistant strain and two other strains that weren't. Um, and it should be noted that the predominant strains that we recovered multiple times was not the resistant one. So um, there was concern about the rifampin resistance, but the likelihood was it was the other strains that we really had to deal with. So the first regimen was rifampin. So they kept rifampin on just because of the other two strains are susceptible, added pyrazinamide, um, and um, started with another drug with a thionH. So it was INH, pyrazinamide, and rifampin. And they treated her um, orally. Now, the problem was that how do you treat an elephant? So if anyone knows, um, has either a cat or a dog, dogs are very easy to pill. You put a, usually a pill in a piece of cheese and a dog will eat it. Um, cats, not as likely. So in this case, the elephants are more like cats. So they knew elephant A really, really enjoyed watermelon. It was her favorite food, so they very wisely took a large... Now, remember, the other issue is you give TB drugs in regard to the body weight. So a baby gets X amount of drug, an adult gets um, X amount more. So it's done by just simply multiplying the amount of drugs per the person's size. So you can imagine an elephant gets a lot of pills per day. This is given daily. This is literally almost a baggie full of pills that they put inside um, and a baggie's worth. They didn't use a bag. Um, a baggie's worth of pills inside the elephant, closed up, I mean the watermelon, closed up the watermelon, gave it to elephant A, and they watched her proceed to gingerly take apart the watermelon with her toes and then eat the entire watermelon and stomp the pills to destruction. So uh, elephant A was very smart. <laughs> and basically told the vets, you're not treating me orally. So what they did, and this was really part of, I think, the success story and maybe a lesson for other people treating um, captive elephants, they literally had to develop a rectal suppository method, which they used these very, very draconian cages to put her in um, with literally her tail sticking out, and a vet, um, a very heroic vet, would wear these gloves up to his armpit and literally um, push these drugs into her um, daily for two months and then every other day um, for the rest of the uh, treatment, which, which, which went on for a year. So um, this was the heroic way, and they treated um, elephant B with the one drug, isoniazid prophylactically, the exact same way. So both were treated rectally. Now, the, the, the inside joke here is that one of the issues of treating tuberculosis patients is compliance or adherence to make sure you take your drugs for six or nine months because it's hard to do. Drugs don't make you feel well. So making sure people take their medicine is key to treating TB. In this case, obviously, um, elephant A and elephant B didn't have much uh, say in the matter. <laughs> the good news was they actually you know, were able to treat them. And now getting back to your question about the resistance issue, so they treated elephant 
a for the entire year using the regimen I said, which turned out to be ultimately. Um, so what they decided was when they went rectally, they decided not to use the rifampin. They just treated with pyrazinamide and INH. And because that's only two drugs, they were always concerned during the whole time period, even though she was trunk wash negative and proved to be, you know, they actually um, got rid of her bacteria with the treatment. They felt that maybe due to the fact it was only two drugs, that it took three months before her trunk washings cleared, which took a long time. Um, and pyrazinamide, sometimes um, in humans, can act on a subset of bacteria and cause the other one, if there's only one additional drug, to deter- become resistant. They were worried that um, elephant A may not have had the best of treatment. Um, and that was just in the back story, but nothing, they decided that they weren't going to do anything. They were just going to wait and see. And that was what really, that was sort of the end of the story. So we had elephant B prophylact, elephant A now cured. And basically Gary and I said, well, you know, this is a nice story. I think the treatment regimen and the success of doing the rectal treatment was probably something that the readers, uh, at least in the veterinary field, would probably find interesting, and we discussed writing it up, but, but basically time went on, and we never did. And then we then there's a second chapter to the story that took place um, later in December 2010. Elephant C, right, right? Yep, excuse me, yeah, yeah. Elephant C. Okay. So, what happens? I get a phone call. So Gary and I kept in touch over the years. He's a, you know, we talk occasionally. And, but then next thing I you know, it's now um, 2010. So literally 10 years have passed. Um, I think he's called me at the end, of, maybe it's the beginning of, of January um, 2011. Um, and he said, um, I'm calling you because you wouldn't believe it. Um, the lab just called me from the zoo. And they said that um, there's an elephant um, not A or B, but another elephant, we'll call C. Um, they did a trunk wash, and they found one, uh, col- one positive colony, um, and it grew M. tuberculosis, and they asked me if I could fingerprint. And I said, of course, Gary. And the obvious question that he was posing, um, which I knew was, was this bacteria coming out of this elephant similar to the one we had found in elephant A? And it was a very, I mean, it's exactly what I do with humans. So it was the, the most logical question and something we do because we had the fingerprint profile of elephant A. So we would just see if it matches. And that's what we did. And to my surprise, and I think Gary's surprise, um, we found that it was an identical match to the predominant strain that um, infected elephant and presumably caused disease in elephant A. So why did it take 11 years? Well, so this is the interesting thing about TB. So let's backtrack to elephant A. So elephant A, presumably, where did elephant A get her TB? So what we think, and this is true in humans, elephant A comes from Asia. Elephant A probably was weaned as a, as a very young elephant and then sent over to the U.S. for this, in this case, caravan. Elephant A then goes through her, her life, and then at some point at age 31, gets in this caravan, gets ill from malnourishment, spends a year in the zoo, and then 
comes down with TB. So literally 32 years at age, the first question is, why did elephant A come down with TB then, and where does it come from? The assumption is that elephant A, as a baby elephant, was infected in India or Thailand, wherever the elephant came from, but an Asian country, um, and then harbored the bacteria um, benignly, like one-third of the world does in humans. And then at some point, due to, in this case, stress, malnourishment, what's called reactivated her TB and came down with disease. So, same thing's true now, we believe, with elephant C. In this case, the presumption is that elephant A infected elephant C most likely during the time when they finally put elephant A with the entire zoo after the first year after quarantine. So the assumption is sometime at that point, elephant A infected elephant C, and elephant C then harbors the bacteria benignly, and for some transient reason maybe, just that time when the trunk was taken, maybe elephant C you know, wasn't feeling well, had some underlying illness, um, and that bacteria comes out. But elephant C never presented with disease. So this, so, so this is a tr- perhaps a transient event. Maybe it was just, you know, maybe elephant C was in the beginning of early disease. The point is they caught it, and that's what these trunk washes are very, very useful for because whether they were going to say elephant C was getting it, going to have major disease or not, there was no issue. You treat elephant C because the elephant C had a positive bacteria. So elephant C then got put on, much like elephant A, a treatment regimen um, with the notion that we have to treat elephant C, you know, for completion as active disease. And that's the right thing to do, and that's what you would do with humans um, if you had a positive culture in a human as well, even if it was one bacteria. Um, so it was, it, it was, you know, in this case, it's a lot of experience of having Gary, who treats human disease, as a consultant with the veterinarians, who obviously know how to handle the animals, um, but it's really the experience of putting two worlds together, the veterinary world, and in this case, you know, people who now treat um, active human disease to really put your heads together. So with elephant C, the question was, and we'll get, you know, we'll get back to the issue of the, the treatment. Now they said, okay, now it's, t- and I remember having this conversation with Gary, now we have elephant C, we're going to treat her. We were concerned we treated elephant A incorrectly. So now we have an opportunity to revisit that. And that's what they did. So no longer was it going to be just isoniazid and pyrazinamide rectally. They were going to give a third drug. And that third drug was something called enofloxacin, E-N-O-F-L-A, excuse me, O-X-A-C-I-N. It's a fluoroquinolone. It's related to ciprofloxacin. But in this case, it's actually used primarily for veterinary medicine. It's not used in human health. So the laboratory at Denver Jewish actually tested the bacteria to make sure it was susceptible to this drug. It was. So in this case, they used this enofloxacin in combination with pyrazinamide in combination with isoniazid into the, the bolus that they used rectally. They treated elephant C for 18 months with this regimen, very long time, and and this is if this was a human being, we probably would not have allowed this because the patient probably would have said, "What are you kidding?" 
They went back to Elephant A and basically in parallel retreated Elephant A with the same regiment, mm-hmm. just out of concern that um, they may have not had complete treatment on her. So basically both elephants, A and C, were treated, in this case, Elephant A again, and Elephant C for 18 months with three drugs, and both elephants to this day are, are healthy and fine and still in the zoo, and I have an open invitation to visit Elephant A and B and C whenever I want. So what about the staff? Great question. So, so, so you can imagine in the literature there are actually documented examples of uh, transmission of um, animal caretakers um, getting TB and presumably transmitting TB. So, yes, this was a big concern. And for both periods of time, um, in the early event, 1997 or 2000, when the first elephant A had disease, and then subsequently in 2010, um, they did full screening on the workers, and I think 178 workers um, in total were tested, and, and there were no PPD conversions uh, during those times, which means that the elephants didn't infect them. Um, and uh, the other thing that's interesting is, so because we can fingerprint bacteria, the TB, we actually know what the fingerprint of elephant A and elephant C looks like, And when we compare it to our database among human TB, it actually um, has what we call, it comes from geographically the the uh, sub-Asian continent, consistent with the idea that this is probably where elephant A um, got the strains. It's it's a human, quote-unquote, Asian strain, which we see um, in our Indian, Pakistani, Thai population, that area of the world, which is where these strains um, are more predominant. So it's, so it's a nice story. And then um, to finally convince people that we really knew transmission took place from elephant A to C, we even did much more um, sophisticated molecular biology, which is to actually sequence the two bacteria and prove they're identical. So um, we did a lot of work to, to basically close this loop in this story. So um, uh, maybe this is an obvious question, maybe not, is TB and elephants, uh, is it a byproduct of living in such close captivity? Well, I think yes. I mean, the, but you can also, just so we don't, I mean, this has been going on a long time, but in, in the real um, African world of animals, unfortunately, um, there's transmission that goes on um, among lions, but in this case, it's not any human intervention. It's due to the fact that there are... Um, Animals that get embovis disease, like buffalo, while buffalo um, and wildebeest and these kinds of animals that the lions will eat on and get infected that way. So there was um, there's a big concern um, in Africa about um, lions and TB. So in that case, um, you're actually getting transmission um, in the wild due to animal prey. Um, clearly, in places um, where humans interact with elephants, much like in India where they train elephants, yeah, I think, you know, all of a sudden putting close quarters, much like we do with other zoonotic diseases, that's the way we get what we call jumps, meaning, you know, animals to humans and vice versa. Um, but in this case, I think the, the, the uniqueness about what we found was here we've actually documented a case which, you know, in, 
it would be hard to argue it didn't happen um, at the zoo, at least, um, because A and C had never seen each other until they were co-quartered once they transmitted them from the you know, quarantine area into the main zoo. So the, they never had crossed paths now. One could say, well, maybe there's some elephant out there or some other source that had the exact same strain that infected C. Yes. Is it possible? Yeah. You can't argue against it, but the likelihood is that A infected C in captivity. Well, it's quite an ordeal that all of everybody went through. Um, are, are there standard guidelines now for treatment of TB in elephants? And You know, the, there's, there's constant revision of the um, monitoring, you know, by the USDA with the trunk washes. And I think the, the good thing that I've learned, just because I had to sort of jump into this field, I have colleagues who do this much more professionally than I do in terms of um, overseeing uh, animal health um, and just learning from Gary, I think these are the types, that, and that's why we were so keen on publishing it. I think um, the treatment issue of using rectal um, delivery, I think now is something that people clearly are, con- you know, consider because it's obviously um, one way to assure treatment. Um, and I'm not sure how many facilities have the capability of doing this. Um, but I think the other issue, and this is true now in many phases of, unfortunately, antibiotic resistance. We always have the concern of which drugs to use um, due to resistance and also be concerns about using drugs in animals that we don't use in humans. Um, And, you know, so the enofloxacin, as an example, um, was an active drug that works in veterinary medicines. We don't use it in humans. So that was was also, I think, a very good decision and one that we noted in the paper as being um, something that I think we advanced at least, you know, stepwise, the treatment phase, providing another option in this case to uh, to cure both uh, elephant A and C. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Kreisworth. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, same here. It's a fun, it's a, it's a fun story uh, to present to people, uh, especially ones that study TB and when you can... Uh, Change, change the, uh, in this case, the patients to elephants. People, uh, for some reason, everyone does love elephants, and um, you actually get a, a nice sigh at the end when they, they see pictures of the elephants back in the zoo, both healthy. So um, everyone's happy at the end. Yeah. <laughs> not usually the story when you give TB talks. Listeners can read the entire article, Mycobacterium tuberculosis infection among Asian elephants in captivity at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.